what I want to do is to try and set the scene. I, I'm aware that I'm talking to people from very different stages in an academic career, and that always poses something of a challenge, because the message I want to give the PVC is probably not the message I want to give the PhD student. Um, so I hope I've got something for everyone in this talk. And I, I'm going to start with some data, so that if you don't recognise what the situation is like for women, this will set the scene. And then go on to talk a bit about what structures might help. It's been mentioned that I'm the university's gender equality champion, and I can say a little bit about what I do in that role. And I shall then move on to talk a bit about the, the sort of more social sciences side of it, the jargon that is often used, things like unconscious bias, stereotype threat, and imposter syndrome. And if you don't know what those are, don't <coughs> worry, I will explain. I think it's, it's interesting, at this late stage in my career, I read far more in the social sciences literature than I read in the physics literature. And um, I find myself sort of engaged in these serious debates about things that I have zero qualifications in. But there you go. That's basically what imposter syndrome is. Um, <laughs> I'll talk a bit, uh, towards the end, I'll talk a bit more for people who are sort of starting out and what might be wise to think about and what might be good places to go for help and what questions you should be asking. I should say I'm kind of disappointed to see that this audience is overwhelmingly female um, because a lot of this applies to men either directly or indirectly and undoubtedly fixing the situation we currently are in cannot be done by women. It will require everyone to believe in this and to work together. So go out and proselytise when you finish here. Go out and tell people um, what's going on because I think some people assume there is no longer any problem. And I'm sorry, I don't think that's the case. So, the scissor graph. So, if you don't know what the scissor graph is, here is one example. It shows, th this is for um, biological sciences. As a physicist, most of my work has done, been done around women in science. But the issues are very much the same, and you could read philosophy for a lot of this. I, I know quite a lot about philosophy, which undoubtedly has very similar problems to my own field of physics. So, the precise numbers vary by discipline, and I'll show you several from the sciences. One of the things that's interesting is everyone is recognised as a problem for women in science, so a lot of work has been done around it. And it's only now that people are beginning to realise that actually the situation in arts and humanities is not really much better, but people haven't been talking about it. So I think there is now an increased awareness that these issues need to be discussed across the board and that a graph like this would apply in, as I say, a subject like philosophy, probably. So here what we have, this is the number of people. The pale pink are the women. goes without saying. The red are the men. Um, so we start off in a subject like biology with a higher number of women in the undergraduate population, and the numbers fall off steadily. Therefore, the percentages of men increase steadily. And by the time we get to the professoriate, we are actually in a position where it's about 80% men, 20% women. This is HESA data from 2008. HESA has changed the way it collects statistics, which actually makes it very hard to continue collecting data in this way. But um, these numbers might have changed slightly, so we might be at 75%, 25%. But basically, the crucial thing is, in mid-career, or a bit earlier, really, um, we see this crossover in a subject like biological sciences. And I would think that might apply to something like English, too. I don't have the data, but in English, certainly you start off with more women in the undergraduate population than men, and I'm not convinced you end up with more women in the professoriate. But correct me if I'm wrong. 
Um, then we have, this is for physics, my own discipline. It's not really a sociograph because we start off with so few women um, and uh, we end up with slightly fewer. Um, actually, physics is interesting because the fallover isn't fall off isn't that bad because you start off with so few and those girls who start uh, those girls who start a university degree are usually pretty committed and pretty damn obstinate um, so that they they tend to stick it out a bit better and then we've got chemistry which starts off around 50 50 but you can see life is not good we end up with not many more professors than uh, in physics so the numbers have improved a bit. Um, the numbers are increasing at the top end. But nevertheless, you get the picture. And whatever discipline you chose, you would end up with something that wasn't that radically different. Um, so here's um, medicine. Let, let me now look at some data in a different way. So this is data from Cambridge. For uh, This is uh, in the science, engineering, and technology subjects by grade. And you can see we've been working very hard, and absolutely nothing has changed so far. Um, the numbers haven't yet reflected all the work that's going in. It's going to take a long time. One of the reasons it's going to take a long time is we have very little turnover in the top grades in Cambridge. People come to Cambridge, as I'm sure they do to Oxford, and they tend to stay. They don't want to move on. I think in um, many institutions there's far more turnover so that we don't have many vacancies so we can start improving things. The, this graph hasn't reproduced very well, but this is the data from Cambridge for the non-science subjects. And you can see the fall-off occurs somewhat later, but the fall-off is still there. We've, we end up, um, this is fairly recent data, with about 21% professoriate in the non-science subjects, and it's about 12% in the science subjects. So we have a problem. Women are leaving. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So why? And you can come up with an enormous list. People usually start with family. I'm not convinced that family is the deal breaker that people often make it out. It's a huge issue, but I can see someone with a small baby there, uh, <laughs> jiggling the baby at the back. Um, it is possible to juggle things. I actually think academic life is rather good for juggling things because certainly in Cambridge, you might be in your department, you might be in your college. So if you're actually at home with a kid, who knows? Um, <laughs> It's how I lived, so don't laugh, don't knock it. Um, Work-life balance is an issue. Isolation, I think, is one that's not talked about very much. In a subject like physics, you might not have another female PhD student around you, and you might mind. Uh, lack of mentoring, we can talk later whether mentoring in a formal sense is useful, but lack of people, lack of sponsoring. I think people like to talk about sponsoring now. Um, so someone who is going to make sure you know what opportunities there are and are setting yourself in the right way to progress. Lack of confidence, lack of role models, lack of support networks, unconscious bias, I'll come back to that, stereotyping, and bullying and harassment. Now, this one really ought not to occur. If bullying and harassment is occurring, there should be ways of handling it. And every organisation has different ways of handling it. It shouldn't occur, but I'm afraid, I believe, it still does. And that, but that is actually, in some ways, easier to handle than a lot of the rest, which are intangible, softer. Oh, why are you complaining? Oh, it's a woman whinging again. I mean, I'm afraid these comments happen only too often. But for any given woman, wherever she may be, in the hierarchy, in whatever uh, discipline, probably a different group of these will apply. I mean, I hope no one's got the whole lot working against them. And some of these are societal. I don't know how many of you saw Mary Beard's lecture or read it. Um, she gave a lecture at the British Library last week, I think. Got a lot of publicity. Uh, Mary is a very brave woman, and I admire her hugely. And she was pointing out 
it's the fact that just as much in classical times as now, a woman speaking out is regarded with disfavor. And she has really had a lot of that to put up with, um, a lot of sort of death threats, literally. So that's fairly extreme, but it is because women speaking out is still seen as a kind of uncomfortable thing for certain sections of the population to cope with. So that may be harder to deal with, but I think many of the societal issues we can start to address in higher education. We should be able to recognize them for what they are, and we should be asking for evidence and then working out what we're going to do. So let me start off with one way of not doing things. The deficit model turns up in various guises. It's often used in the context of science communication. If you just explain things slowly enough about your science, the public will get it. But it doesn't really work like that. And it's the same kind of thing that you cannot solve the problem by fixing the women because the women aren't the problem, it's the structures. And I think it has for many years <coughs> been thought, oh, well, if we just encourage the women to be a bit more like men, it'll all be solved. Well, it won't be, not least because women acting like men don't go down very well. But at the same time, that's often the advice they're given. Why don't you act more like a man? Why don't you write more like a man? Why don't you go on voice coaching and lower your voice? <laughs> I've been asked, that's advice I've been given by someone who thought he was supportive. Mary Beard, it was interesting, Mary Beard said that she didn't know a single woman who hadn't been given that advice. If you want to be persuasive, go on voice coaching. It's what Maggie Thatcher did, and people obviously think it's a good thing to do. My own view is, I am who I am, and I don't see why. I should be asked to lower my voice. If what I say is sensible, it should be listened to, and someone talking in a low voice who's talking drivel, I'm sorry, I don't rate that. Um, so we have to be careful not to think that fixing the women is the answer. We need to fix the structures, the system. And we need to work out how any given organization is handling that situation, because different organizations will be different. There's no point me talking about physics, where we start off with really no numbers, and thinking that anything we do there will apply to biology, where we start off with high numbers of women. They're going to be different. And it is, of course, the case that what I am saying is not really specific to higher education. It does apply in the boardroom. You will have exactly the same discussions going on in many different guises. So, Let's turn first to the university. I appreciate, firstly, that Oxford and Cambridge are different in the interplay between college and university, and I probably don't understand the Oxford system at all. It's hard enough to understand the Cambridge system, and I've been there most of my life. But I'm trying to think about generic things that might apply across the board. And I think the first thing, and I'm delighted that the PVC is here, because I think visible commitment from the top is really, really important. Um, in Cambridge, our Vice-Chancellor, who rejoices in the name of Sir Boris, I can't say it, he's always known as Boris, um, he is absolutely committed to this. I went to talk, along with the relevant PVC, to a meeting of heads of institution, and when Jeremy and I had finished, Boris stood up and sort of really ripped into them. I mean, it, he clearly thought we'd been quite mealy-mouthed, and that's brilliant, because having that visible commitment is absolutely crucial. I think having champions... It's important because it means there are people <coughs> whose responsibility it is to keep mentioning this, to, to hammer away at it. One thing that wasn't mentioned is that I sit on the University Council, so I can say, you know, have you thought about this? What are you doing? And it's just sort of conscience of, of the organisation in some ways. We actually have <coughs> champions for gender, race and disability so that we try and, and handle the protected characteristics across the board. And um, I certainly see 
the relevant PVC and the head of HR very regularly. And it means that we, we all know what's going on. But there are other things that can be done. Celebrating the success of minorities, disseminating good news, thinking about what appears on your website. So one of the things I did as sort of being the conscience of my organization, I talked to our comms team and I said, uh, do you monitor how many news stories you run about research that are from men and from women. Absolutely no reason why they should do affirmative action and, and make sure that women's stories are there. But it does matter if women aren't putting their hand up, as may be the case, if they aren't um, being sponsored to, to think of going to the comms office, then we should make sure that where there are good stories, they are properly reflected. And now they're much more conscious about this. What about people who return from long-term leave? Now, maternity leave is the obvious one. But there may be other reasons, people who've been long-term sick, people who are caring for elderly parents, or there may be many reasons why people are off. And we've introduced a scheme called the Returning Carers Scheme where we provide really very modest sums of money, but to uh, support people when they come back. So to take the example of maternity leave, it may be that a mother returning from leave wants to go to a conference to uh, get back into the field if she's had six, 12 months off. Um, but she can't leave the child behind, maybe she's still feeding, we will provide funds that would enable her to take um, a childminder, could be her partner, but it could be a nanny, whatever, so that she can go with the child and with someone else. And it really doesn't cost that much, but we found that it, it absolutely gives the people who get this smaller sum of money a real fillet. They believe the university values them, and it's been very powerful. We've only been running it for um, a few rounds. Um, so that, that, that's the kind of thing. We haven't yet had an application from a man, but uh, I hope we will, because these things aren't simply about women. These things are about people. And sharing and disseminating good practice between departments. Within the sciences, there is a, a benchmarking scheme called Athena Swan. It's run by the Equality Challenge Unit. It's being run to non-STEM departments. Um, now in a pilot scheme, and they require all the applications to be put on the web and widely accessible, but we can share even before we get to that point to make sure that what works in one department is translated to another, and I'm sure that would apply to colleges too. And make sure that recruitment and promotions are transparent and fair processes. This, historically, I suspect did not happen. Uh, when I first sat on boards of electors for chairs in Cambridge, I would suspect they were illegal. It was not a healthy situation. It's the, done the way it had always been done, which was, I know blogs heat be good. And I mean, this is some time ago, and we have introduced completely different and much more stringent uh, ways of doing it. But it's also the case that, and I would suspect Oxford would be the same, you assume people want to come and work with you. So you put out an advert and you wait to see who applies. You don't necessarily actively go out and search. And again, we've introduced schemes whereby Appointments committees will not approve appointments if the chair of the committee that does the uh, sort of informal side of things cannot demonstrate they've done a proper search. Um, we, and there are many ways you can do that. So it's really, really important. Um, now, let me say a bit more about promotion. Um, a group of us from Cambridge uh, put a letter into the Times Higher Education today, some of you may have seen it, <coughs> calling for a broadening of the discussion of what success means and hence how we recruit and promote people. Because uh, we did a lot of interviews with women, and they were saying things like, well, I really value the fact that I have a team which works well together. And that won't apply, I would expect, in your promotion criteria. But it's hugely, hugely important. I was giving a slightly different talk at Royal Holloway earlier this week, and 
at the end, I was asked a question by a male head of department who said, um, surely our promotion criteria are really those that favour the selfish. And I'm afraid that's probably true. I mean, that was Royal Holloway, but I suspect ours are the same and yours are probably the same. The idea that all that matters, that you bring in the money, you write lots of papers in glamour publications, and you're not necessarily worrying about your team or contributing to the department in other ways other than research. And I think we absolutely need to think about some of these much harder to measure things. We like metrics. Metrics are good. So, you know, is your grant income bigger than mine? Um, I'm afraid we live in a mind's bigger culture and we need to move beyond it. And uh, we don't sort of forget the individuals who are contributing to the research just because that glamour publication comes out. Um, so I am now charged to go and talk on BBC Breakfast about this tomorrow morning. So <laughs> I will be waiting for a taxi from the BBC to pick me up at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning outside the Porter's Lodge. Um, so I think this is something that is timely. Cambridge has written this letter and saying we want other institutions to join in a debate about it. And it's not about feminine traits, though these, if we change things, it may favour women more than men in the sense that women are disadvantaged by the current system. It's about encouraging a diverse workforce in its broadest sense. And all the evidence is from business, um, etc., that diverse teams lead to better outcomes. So my role as gender equality champion, I've been gender equality champion for about three years, maybe four, I can't remember now. And there has been no real description. There's going to be, because I'm stepping down when I go take over as Master of Churchill, and they are going to divide the job into two. They're going to have two champions, so one for the arts and uh, humanities and one for the sciences. And I think that reflects the fact that it really is a massive job. The advantage for me, having sort of come up through Cambridge, but having become a professor and quite well known as a scientist, it means that people can't dismiss me. If I want to talk to our Vice-Chancellor, he will make time for me. I'm externally visible, and that's all hugely important. As the gender equality champion, I have, uh, we have a senior gender equality network. We have a gender equality group. So there are lots of places where we can try ideas out. Lots of people are involved. And um, the gender equality group is interesting because it was initially set up to work out with the information we got through our equal pay reviews. Now, as far as I know, Cambridge is the only university, only Russell Group University that publishes its equal pay reviews, uh, which I find interesting. And we've been doing this for a number of years. And we can find out things like the average pay for men is a lot higher than for women. Well, that's not very surprising. There are lots of cleaners who tend to be female in the lowest grades, and the professors, as we've seen, tend to be men. Um, that's not really very interesting, because that's just uh, grade segregation. But what is interesting is if you find differences within grades, um, why are men being paid more than women? Um, nearly always, that is the way around it is. And we can start, through this group, we can start analysing it, get more information, and start working out, are there things that are going on in the way men come in and negotiate for salaries, for instance, and so tend to end up higher up, whereas women just come in and think, oh, I got a job, that's wonderful, and settle for what they're offered. So that's <coughs> been a very interesting experience. I sit on relevant committees, and as I say, I can be their conscience. I host a lot of university events so that um, in a couple of weeks we're having a big event around International Women's Day when we're launching a book which ties in with um, the idea of what is success in the eyes of women. And I also do a lot of writing and talking about this, so I travel around quite a lot talking about what we're doing. I write a blog, I write for The Guardian. I say mostly I'm allegedly writing for The Guardian about science, but it does seem to involve quite a lot of gender. And we're going to set up local champions across the university to embed best practice as far as we can. 
Where do I think organizations go wrong? I think they go wrong by assuming that individuals understand how the system works, that they will know what to do if they want to progress. They assume people will ask for what they need and lots of people won't. They assume the right people will apply without, being, you know, without it being mentioned to them. They assume that all PIs will look after their research teams properly, and I'm afraid I don't think that's true. And they assume there's no bullying and harassment. And really, you have to keep looking. Like, is, this, is this working? And if not, why not? And what can we do? It's not sufficient just to sit back and think everything's fine because, for instance, you have good policies. We've had good policies in Cambridge about flexible working for years, but people don't feel comfortable asking for it. I mean, the idea that you can be a professor working part-time, most people just don't believe that's the case, and yet we have people like that. There are myths out there, and again, I would assume Oxford is the same. And it's useful to carry out consultations to actually find out what's going on and what people worry about. Uh, we ran a whole series of consultations uh, with different groups of staff. I mean, it's not just about academics, it's about everyone. And we found some very interesting things about what they felt. They felt they didn't understand promotion. So we now run, as many universities do, it's hardly very startling, but we now run open fora so that the information, you, know, you get a book like that if you want to apply for promotion, but what you really want is someone telling you six key facts. So we now run fora about that. We ran workshops about things like confidence building. I think one of the things that would be really good was um, how to say no without feeling guilty. I'm not sure we've done that one yet. Um, so what about within a college? I'm sure having a warden who is deeply committed is hugely important. You need to know what's happening within your own college. What are the local statistics? How do you apply um, for, uh, sorry, how do you deal with fellowship applications? Because no doubt you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So what's your preliminary sift like? How do your students perform? We, we've had this statement um, sort of rumbling around uh, supervisors who say, why don't you write more like a man? Now, I have no idea what that statement means. I don't suppose the students do. And I think it's singularly unhelpful to be given a statement which sounds really useful, but you have no idea what it means. Um, so that we are trying to train our supervisors to be a little more helpful. That's a really, really discouraging kind of statement to get. Um, you know, I'm all, I'm write more like a man. Um, and what the hell does he mean? Um, and what sort of internal mentoring do you have? Do you have um, support for people as they come through the system? So I mentioned unconscious bias. Unconscious bias is this nasty habit we all have, and this applies to men and women, that if you look at a CV and it's got Joe Bloggs on the top, you will score it higher than if it's got Joanna Bloggs on the top. So identical CVs, we all tend to judge the woman more harshly. And it's not at all clear why we do it. It's some kind of conditioning. And that there was this recent study uh, from the States, which was actually about someone applying for a, a lab manager job, really shook people up to see quite how stark the differences were. And there are various studies doing that. If you think you haven't got an internal bias, I suggest you go to this uh, website from Harvard, Project Implicit. Um, I have tried several times the test which associates uh, female words with scientists and male words with arts and humanities. And you'd have thought I'd be quite good at it because I do a lot of work in this area and I'm still moderately biased against women as scientists. And I think that just, I'm, and all the women scientists I know are the same. It's really, really hard not to have that because we are conditioned that way from birth. And um, this is the sort of inbuilt assumptions that women are meant to be nurturing, kind, good with people, and men are expected to be assertive, decisive risk takers. And if you're not, I mean, if you're a, a, a man who's trying to be nurturing, you may be just as disadvantaged as if you're a woman trying to be <coughs> assertive. 
We, we don't like people who don't fit um, what we think they ought to be like. And unconscious bias turns up in nasty places, like letters of reference. One of the joys of being a senior person is you read lots of letters of reference. I sit on lots of committees. Again, there's quite a lot of evidence um, showing how letters are gendered. But I will give you two specific examples um, from a Cambridge committee I saw. They happened to be in the next two, you know, they were two adjacent papers in a pile. And um, this was a woman who was absolutely stellar. She got all this money. She'd written lots of publications. And she'd had time off for maternity leave. But, oh, it's a bit too soon for her. Whereas the bloke had written nearly all the papers with his PhD supervisor, who was still in the same department. And the inference was the bloke was the senior author and presumably the intellectual driving force. There was absolutely no evidence from what was presented in the paperwork to make that statement valid, uh, but he was highly deserving. Now, I knew both these, and they were both highly deserving, and they were both, you know, they both scored very highly, so I felt quite happy. But it was a, a shocking thing to read those two statements um, in juxtaposition because the people writing them, I'm sure, did not realise what they were doing. The idea that this spectacular woman, it was too soon, and there's lots of evidence to show that that is usually the case. So, we, you know, it, we mustn't put this woman in a risky position. We shouldn't ask her to do something challenging. It also turns up when negotiating, for instance, over salaries. If women don't ask for a rise or whatever it may be, and again, this applies across the board, literally. I mean, it will apply in the boardroom. Um, they end up with lower salaries. Um, if they act masculine and do ask, they are regarded badly. People don't want to work with them. Studies show that if you penalise candidates who ask, who initiate negotiations, whereas you wouldn't penalise the man. The studies observing how these negotiations go on. There was an interesting study done in Stanford where they recognised the problem, so they went and trained the women to negotiate. This was faculty. They trained the women to negotiate. They failed to train the administrators who the women were negotiating with. And the negotiations broke down because the administration couldn't cope with these women who actually now knew how to negotiate like a man. <laughs> It's just horrendous. I mean, and nobody, you know, the good thing about unconscious bias is you can make it conscious. You can think, hang on, am I reacting to this situation because uh, it's a woman talking to me or is this genuinely a problem? And I think the more we can tease the unconscious out into the open, the less it will be a problem. Uh, stereotype threat is another concept that I've come across only relatively recently. If you do things that... Um, aren't what is expected of you, you may feel a threat. A lot of work done around girls and maths. If you remind a girl before a test that she's a girl, you know, just by asking her to identify her, her gender on the exam paper, um, she is likely to do worse than if you don't. And I find this extraordinary, but apparently all the evidence is that it takes very little to make people feel threatened. Um, if you set up a race between black and white athletes, a sprint race, I should say, and remind the whites in the audience that the black sprinters tend to be faster, the white people will run slower than they would if you don't tell them that. I mean, it crops up all over the place. But it's also the case that if you have a room, there are no portraits in here, so I can safely say this. If you have a room, and I bet there are rooms in Merton, where all the people on the walls are men, <laughs> probably in wigs, yes, um, <laughs> women will feel, I don't belong here. The Royal Society is another... <laughs> bad example um, but we'll change that um, so I, I was interested a, a professor of philosophy a female professor of philosophy not in my own university but elsewhere said she'd gone and given a talk 
possibly in Oxford, I don't know, I'm not sure where it was, and she looked around and all the pictures were you know, male. And she suddenly sort of went to pieces because she thought, what am I doing here? And it's extraordinary how these really very subtle cues can matter. So think about that. Um, you can counter it if you put up images of the minority. And there are situations like nursing studies where the men will be in a minority. It's not just about uh, women. It's about being in a minority and feeling you don't belong. Change the, the visualizations. This idea that you can write positive statements. If you spend 15 minutes twice a term writing positive statements, the girls did better in physics. Again, I find this really weird. The powers of suggestion are amazing. But apparently, it's evidence that people have established. And I think when it comes to teaching in college, think about the messages you are subliminally giving by the texts you choose or um, the people you quote. Some people believe it's impossible to combine a serious career, sorry, this is a slide I've stolen from somewhere else, it's a science career, but it doesn't really matter, and a family, despite the evidence. I had a PhD student of mine, female, came to me and said, no, I don't want to stay in academia, I couldn't have a family. And I thought, but I've got two children, what does she think I've done? So uh, people believe this, this is the kind of myth that perpetuates. No one's saying that being an academic and having children is easy, um, but it can be done. And it's important to get those messages out there. Dual careers tend to be harder because often the woman follows the man around and therefore her career may suffer. She may be on a lot of short-term contracts. I'm not a good role model in certain senses. My husband gave up his career. So I have had a career my husband has not and he's really looking forward to being the master's wife, I can assure you. <laughs> but if you can't, if you can't stay where it is good for you because you're following your partner, it does create problems and one of the things, certainly as for scientists, the long hours you may have to put in at the bench are not necessarily compatible with knitting home to, to feed the baby or meet the children from school or whatever. And there are undoubtedly challenges there. So, but there may be ways of mitigating them and people need to think creatively. Uh, one thing I do get quite cross about is the assumption that it's the mother who's the primary carer. Because if both parents are working, both parents can also take their part in the childcare, and too often childcare is seen as the mother's problem, and I <coughs> don't accept that that is the case anymore. There's absolutely no reason why that should be so. I mentioned isolation. I think in the sciences that's possibly particularly the case. I'm not convinced that arts and humanities students don't find that isolation always occurs because you're in the library and you may never see anyone all day. Uh, that's a different problem. I'm not convinced by mentoring because if you assign a mentor, there may be no chemistry between you and you may not find it works I mean it's great if it does work but I think it's better if you can find the support system that works for you through sort of chance encounters rather than relying on some formal system I think it's hugely important to realize that females do not need female mentors none of my mentors have been female um, I've had really good men who have supported me advised me pushed me promoted me it, it, I don't mean promoted me in the, in the system, I mean, promoted me to their colleagues, said, you should read these papers, whatever. Um, I don't think, I mean, there aren't enough women to go round, basically, so you probably need a male mentor. Um, what really matters is that you have a good relationship with them, you can ask them for advice, you feel comfortable with that, and it's a two-way street. But it's important to feel comfortable asking people. I remember a male colleague saying to me that he would be always willing to help people, but he felt it was patronising to offer to help and he wished the students would come to him and ask for advice. And I think that's a very important message, that people should be willing to ask for help. 
So the imposter syndrome, or something else I mentioned, um, the imposter syndrome is that feeling that you're doing something and you got there by mistake. And at some point, someone's going to say to you, you're a fraud, you're an imposter, what are you doing? And I, I um, came to this quite late in life. I, one of the first occasions I came across it, I was having a, a public conversation with my vice-chancellor for a women's event. My vice-chancellor, previous vice-chancellor, was a woman, Alison Richards. And um, she said that when she got a letter admitting her to Newnham in Cambridge, she assumed it was a clerical error. And that's a classic sort of example, the feeling that it wasn't really meant to be you and you're going to be discovered. The evidence is that women probably feel this slightly more. But um, it's, it's true across the board. And I won't embarrass the men in the front row by asking them if they feel like this. But my impression is that most people feel like this at least some of the time that you're always being asked to do something new that you've not experienced before, and you think, this is going to be awful, I can't do this. The advantage of getting older is you feel, well, I did something new last week, and I got away with it, so I'll probably get away <laughs> with it. Um, but if you, if you don't take that attitude that you can do it, then you may end up never trying anything new at all, and that's really dangerous. And I think the people who suffer from imposter syndrome are the ones who can't sort of take hold of it and say, I'm going to try this anyhow. Um, so you can say, I'm never going to try anything new. And, and you know, you let fear paralyze you and you, you sort of fossilize. Or you can say, and I think um, the analogy I use is it's like an actor using stage fright. Actors will always say they have stage fright, but the adrenaline that they get from that makes them actually do better. And I think that's the way to think about how to cope with imposter syndrome. Um, if you try something and it doesn't work, you may remember, but most other people will probably forget in a space of about five minutes. And um, so it's important to think about what are the real consequences. I mean, sometimes there will be really serious consequences, but very often it's just a momentary embarrassment. Um, and I think it is important to realize that most people, however senior they are, will feel this from time to time. And if you feel it, you are not alone. Because I think sometimes people don't talk about it and they think it's just me and I'm useless and I can't do this. When we did consultations, one of the things that came up a lot was that people didn't want to self-promote, and specifically women didn't want to self-promote. They didn't want to put their hands up and say, me, me, I'm good at this, why don't you ask me to do it? And if you don't ask, you often don't get. It's, I think it's important to realize that you can put yourself forward without coming across as boastful. And if you really can't bear to do that, find someone else who can do it for you. Let someone know that you would be interested in this role. So. Um, they can drop a, a word in the ear of the relevant person. Um, I think we have to get past this sort of embarrassment that I think young women are inculcated, probably from birth, that it's not nice that girls don't do this. And we have to get past that. If you don't have a mentor, you probably have friends. You probably have friends who are just that little bit ahead of you in the system, and you can turn to them for advice. I think people get very hung up on the idea of I must have a mentor instead of I have a circle of trusted colleagues who I can turn to and I can turn to them for different pieces of advice at different times. Bullying is a, a different issue because that's something that you probably do have to deal with in quite a formal way. But if you're just trying to find out how do I apply for this fellowship or what do I need to do to get on, a friend's support system, colleague support system is often good enough. And if you're thinking about career progression, um, it's useful to work out who you should turn to to get answers to these kind of questions. I mean, some of them you've got to answer yourself. 
This was um, a set of questions we devised uh, when I was chair of the Athena Forum. And it was aimed at postdocs, but I think it's a, a list of questions that applies practically at any stage, possibly not by the time you're the warden of a college, but um, at most stages, <laughs> I think it's useful. Now, what motivates you? That's, that's questions it's always good to ask yourself. Am I doing the right kinds of things? Am I bored out of my mind? Do I want to move somewhere else? So what do you need to do for that next stage? Um, because if you are a research fellow and you're trying to find a permanent position, what is it you've got to do in order to make that leap? Bullying and harassment, I hope, is not an issue, but it may be. And one of the things I think is very unfortunate about this is if someone makes a complaint, then it tends to go under wraps. And it's very easy for everyone else to think, why isn't my organisation dealing with this? I know there was a problem. And I think that's, that's just really unfortunate. In the situations I've seen, it looks as if no one's doing anything and actually all the proper channels are going being gone through but you can't talk about it. The hope is that you never get to the point of making an official complaint because an official complaint means everyone's lost. I think it's nearly always a lose-lose situation. So anything you can do to stop that in its tracks before you get there is important. And that's why you need sort of informal processes, people to go to who uh, you can have confidence that if you say... I did not like what my fellow PhD student was doing when I was working late on Friday. You, know, you can imagine, these things, they can be quite subtle, but if you are feeling uncomfortable, then they're not good enough. And let me assure you, I still find extraordinary situations where people suddenly put their arms around me in completely inappropriate ways, and I think, good grief, you know. <laughs> my age, what must it be like if you're 25? So it's, it's important that there are places where you can go to and feel safe. And whistleblowers must be supported because I think when people do call out, it's really important that they don't suffer themselves. Formal complaints are the place of last resort. Let us hope we don't have those problems. Now, there's one final thing I should say, and that is that it's easy to think that, you know, there may be big problems like bullying and harassment. With any luck, you don't have them. But... There are lots of little things, and for many women, it just adds up to something that's horrible. And here's uh, an example. This is a 1988 punch cartoon, um, and I think it's most women will have experienced this. I think many men may have experienced it too. It doesn't have, you know, an awful lot of what I say does not apply just to women. But most women will have experienced a situation where they feel they're invisible, that what they say just has no weight in discussion, and these trivial frustrations can really, really add up. There was an American author I read who referred to them as micro-inequities. And so each of them on their own, you could shrug off. But if you get it day after day after day, I think that's one of the most telling reasons why women lead, because they just can't face hacking it for another day. So the kinds of things I'm talking about, being ignored or talked over at committee meetings, and um, as I say, most women will have recognised that, being expected to do tasks that others won't. That, oh, you know, you'd be so good at it, this really boring, mundane task that no one will give you any credit for. You'll do it, won't you? Yes, I can see nodding in the audience. Um, and there are almost always the jobs that aren't going to do anything for your career prospects. It's very hard to say no when someone asks you to do something like that. Because, but the reality is probably that 20 other people have already said no. Being forgotten to be included in things. Inclusivity really matters. So it could be after-work drinks. I was very struck by a conversation I had with a retired uh, captain of industry who said that uh, now he was retired, he went to Weight Watchers. 
and he suddenly realised what it must be like to be a single woman in a room of men talking about football or something. Because the women were talking about knitting or, you know, whatever it was, making marmalade, I don't know. They weren't trying to exclude him, but he felt excluded, and it really brought home to him this accidental exclusion that can happen. Having to listen to casually sexist remarks, um, there's been a lot of talk about that in the press, so I don't really need to expand it on it, but it does happen. Seeming to be invisible, so that... I mean, there, there are wonderful stories of um, a senior woman travelling around, doesn't have to be an academic, could be, a, again, an industrialist or something, with a more junior male, and everyone talks to the man. The woman just is as if she isn't there. And that still happens. And then what's the woman supposed to do? So clear a throat and say, excuse me, I'm the important person around here. Very hard. You c you're, in a, you're in a lose situation if, you, if that happens to you. And being accused of being emotional or not able to take a joke. Usually that means that, um, I'm sorry, the man you're talking to has lost the argument and throws this in to disrupt the conversation. I've had that happen to me surprisingly often. The idea that a lot of women get cross because it's all right for men to lose tempers, it's not all right for women to look as if they're going to burst into tears. Um, and yet the reality is those are two different sides of the same coin. Um, and we, we don't, that, that's part of societal expectations. But it, a good chair will stop that. We'll make sure that that kind of thing does not go on if it's happening in a, a meeting. And if you are complaining that someone's made a sexist remark and you're told, oh, can't you take a joke? It, you know, it's a horrible feeling. As I say, these on their own may not look like a huge amount, but if it happens to you time and time again, you're going to feel pretty worn down by it. I'm afraid I think there are no simple answers. All the evidence is about the gender pay gap and that's across the board. We've got to sort that one out. In a way, I almost think that's easy because that just needs people to be conscious when they appoint people what they're doing. Um, I think it's all these other sort of smaller things which look as if they shouldn't matter. The fact that you, f you feel as if you stand out, that you're the only one who is in whatever situation. And this will apply to any minority, and it isn't just about gender, and it isn't just about women. But if there is sufficient support, if you create structures that will support the minorities, then they can um, start overcoming these problems. I think that people are very nervous, apprehensive, and sometimes unnecessarily so about the complications of finding a work-life balance. But it is obviously a real issue, and short-term contracts at the start of a career are very hard on women who want to start a family. Um, but I think this, uh, this thing about the, the minor irritations adding up, I think that's a real killer and is absolutely unquantifiable because no one's going to start writing down, Professor X said that I couldn't take a joke. You know, you're not going to keep a diary like that, but it's the only way of sort of reminding yourself that there are these constant barrage of minor things. So there's a lot that can be done. I think there's a lot that can be done without much cost. I don't think this is a question of throwing money at the problem so much as being aware thinking, looking at your structures within the college, within the university, trying to work out how to move things forward and support those in a minority. Thank you. Thank you.